My name's Nick Sawyer, and welcome to the Swap Podcast, where we exchange news and views on the latest trends in derivatives and finance. It's midsummer here in London. The sun has been shining and the trees are in full bloom. But for the first time since we launched the Swap, is the CEO Scott O'Malia is joining me not from his home in London, but from across the pond in New York. After more than a year of Zoom meetings due to the pandemic, he's on the road again meeting with ISDA staff and members in the US. That might mean some time in quarantine when he gets back to London, but it's also a sign of a gradual return to normality after the pandemic. Scott, how's the trip been so far? Well, New York is open for business, that's for sure. Weather's good over here and the restrictions have been dropped. So you can really feel some energy and people thinking about the future, less about the past. People are talking about vacations and not new variants over here. But I've also had the opportunity to sit down with members and and speak to them and listen to them about priorities. Not surprisingly, these priorities uh, that they've been talking about, including preparation for IBOR transition, adopting the new interest rate definitions, the initial margin requirements, and Basel III coming up. Yeah, you mentioned initial margin there, which is the subject of today's episode. On September the 1st, a new wave of entities will come into scope of regulatory requirements to exchange initial margin for non-centrally cleared derivatives. This will be the fifth phase of the regulatory rollout, which began in September 2016, but it will be the most challenging so far. While previous phases involved relatively small numbers of firms coming into scope, ISDA analysis suggests hundreds of firms will be caught by phase five and also by phase six, which will follow in September 2022. Scott, phase five of the initial margin rules, they've been on the industry's radar screen for quite some time now, right? That's right, Nick. We've always known phase five would be a very difficult lift. At ISDA, we've been messaging about this and making sure people are prepared and thinking about how they how they get the operational, legal, and custodian relationships set up and, and executed in time. This involves many counterparties and many counterparty relationships than the previous phases. Thankfully, the Basel Committee and IOSCO have recognized the challenges. And in 2019, the final phases was split into two parts, phase five and a new phase six. Then at the start of the pandemic in 2020, they delayed the last two phases by one year, giving market participants the capacity they needed to deal with the crisis. But that time is up and we now have to get on with it. So we have about two months until the phase five deadline, and there's a lot to do in that time. So really, firms are hopefully well along in their process to be ready to execute on September 1. So let's talk more about exactly what's involved in meeting those requirements. And we've got two great guests with us today to help us do exactly that. Greg O'Donoghue is the Director and Senior Legal Counsel for Derivatives at the Ontario Teachers Pension Plan. And Jerome Blay is Head of Business Development and Client Solutions, Tri-Party Collateral Management at BNP Paribas Security Service. Together, Greg and Jerome can give us a buy-side and a custodian perspective on the IM regulations and what's involved. So, Scott, over to you. Greg, Jerome, welcome to The Swap. It's great to have you both on. Let's start with the big picture. The phased implementation of IM requirements for non-clear derivatives began in September of 2016, and it's set to complete in September of 2022. What has been the biggest impact of these rules, both from an industry perspective and the perspective of your firms? Greg, let's start with you. Yeah, sure. Uh, thanks, Scott, and uh, happy to discuss that. The biggest impact that we've seen from an initial margin requirements perspective is effectively the removal of credit risk from Dorota's relationships. 
The risk of having contractual obligations satisfied in the event of a counterparty's failure is reduced dramatically by receiving variation margin to deal with day-to-day -day market movements and receiving initial margin to deal with the market movements within the time period between counterparty's failure and your ability to close out or replace those transactions. From an Ontario teacher's perspective, we welcome the exchange of initial margin. The elimination of credit risk ultimately makes markets safer, which in turn makes for more efficient and desirable markets to be a part of. Excellent. Thank you. Jerome? Sure. So from our perspective, what we saw was that it helped accelerate the move from bilateral collateral management to tri-party collateral management, with the obvious reasons being that the pledged format in encourages the use of securities as collateral and tri-party is really well designed to manage securities as collateral. So it, it increased the move from the buy side, especially from bilateral, which they were used to for variation margin to tri-party for initial margin. From a BNP Paribas security services point of view, this is one of the many reasons that encourage us to enter the space in order to support our clients to be compliant by the deadlines. Excellent. On September 1, the Phase 5 implementation will capture entities with non-clear derivative notional outstanding exposure exceeding 50 billion euros, and that threshold falls to just 8 billion the next year in Phase 6. This means that many smaller entities, including pension schemes, mutual funds, and USITs, will need to begin posting initial margin. These entities are quite different from the firms captured in the earlier phases, which were predominantly banks. What are the implications for all of this? Jerome? Yeah, sure. It does increase complexity due to the sheer diversity in geography and client type. It increases project complexity at all levels, whether it's legal or IT or custody or the providers that our clients can, can appoint. There may also be a fact where a, an asset manager or an asset owner uh, will have multiple providers in different geography. So they will have to decide whether they want a unified model or if they leave the people on the ground who know their market, keep with their historical models and system. At BNP Paribas, we've been rather than playing simply a provider role, we've actually transformed and put on a consultant hat where we've been really helping our clients try to find the right solution for them. Excellent. Greg, any, any thoughts on this? Yeah, sure. We had a little bit of experience with initial margin beforehand, but it was the opposite way that you would think as our credit rating is a little higher than most of our counterparties. So uh, we had a bit of experience with it, but uh, first time that we'll be posting under that regime for sure. And my answer might be a little different from most buy side entities in, in, in this regard because of that fact, but because of some other facts as well. Ontario Teachers is set up to manage its own assets, which is a bit different from the typical buy side institution that rely heavily on the use of external managers to invest on their behalf. As a result, we have a full trading desk, a legal counsel that specializes in derivatives, a credit department that monitors derivative counterparties, operations group that can deal with exchange of margin, as well as a compliance department that can ensure the rules are being adhered to. This may not be universal characteristics of the buy side. And if any of these pieces are missing, from the general buy side perspective, you may see a greater need for the use of third-party service providers to fill in that gap. As for compliance challenges, one of the largest compliance challenges we see is really just the sheer volume of work that's required to be done and the limited number of people to actually do that work. There are definitely bottlenecks throughout the system, for sure. Okay, many clients are going to be facing challenges in meeting the deadlines. There are operational challenges. There are legal challenges, as Greg had mentioned. Jerome, you also mentioned you serve partly as a client advisor in terms of preparing your clients for getting ready for the new implementation dates. So how are you advising InScope clients as they think about preparations for phase five? We started early. We try to be as proactive as possible. When we do work as a 
high-end calculation agents. We try to tell our clients as early as possible that they may be in scope of wave five. And then we try to tell them to be as proactive as possible. You know, we we do always, I think we're wired to try to do everything perfectly, to deliver everything perfectly when everything is ready. In the context of the unclear margin rule, we've encouraged our clients to send everything they have or their question they have on an ongoing basis, all right, to consolidate a good picture. Send us your documentation, send us your requirements, send us your, your needs, your questions, your doubts as early as possible so that we can build a picture and help you move in the right direction. Fantastic. Now, in 2019, the Basel Committee and IOSCO made clear that firms do not need to meet their documentation, custodial, operational requirements if they do not exceed the 50 million initial margin threshold. How important is that in reducing the bottlenecks? And what implications does this have for firms in terms of monitoring their RIM thresholds with their counterparties? I guess, Jerome, we'll go to you and then, and then to Greg. Thanks. That was very important. That was essential. What we do see, though, is, in effect, it provided a lot of relief that was extremely necessary. In practice, we still see firms who want to make sure that they are fully ready by September 1st, initially. And then reality hits. When they speak to their dealers, the dealers are, oh, hold on, you don't have to do this. Let's not do this for no reason. So we see a lot of back and forth. And in the end, the result is only a portion uh, of the documentation is going to have to be executed. But we still see some of the buy side wanting to be ready by September 1st, which is okay if we start early, which poses some problems if we start a little late. Greg, how did you think about this threshold? It was definitely important. It was so nice to have that relief. From a buy side perspective, I think it removed some market participants from the queue. So that just makes it easier for the people who are left over in that queue to get their stuff done as well. We are definitely one of those counterparties that have continued to negotiate and continue to negotiate for the deadline with the majority of our counterparties, not all, but the majority. And that just relates to past experience and trading behaviors and knowing whether or not we can go over that threshold within a very short period of time. So with a, a lot of counterparties, there, there's the potential we could go over day two, day three. So with, with respect to that, we just needed to get documents put in place for the actual compliance date. There are a handful of, of counterparties that we that's not the case. So we just decided that we'll come back and, and revisit those in September. And at that point, start looking at those relationships and putting those in place once we have a little bit more breathing room. Although phase six is also will be in there. So I don't know how much breathing room there'll be. Now, in the previous four phases, we've seen a total of 52 entities brought into scope over the past four years, 20 in phase one, we had six in phase two, eight in phase three, and 18 in phase four. Does the industry really have the capacity to cope with the hundreds of entities, literally hundreds of entities coming into scope in phases five and six? And how can the risk of compliance and operational bottlenecks be mitigated? Greg, what are your thoughts? And we'll go to Jerome. Yeah, from my experience, the infrastructure is definitely being overwhelmed by the number of entities that need to get documents in place. The negotiation process is taking far longer than anyone expected, and this is only half the work. Then you got to get on to the operational side as well. Institutions have limited resources, obviously, to dedicate to implementing initial margin, and typically these same resources are also responsible for all of the other major initiatives that are currently being implemented, like IBOR replacement, clearing risk and capital incentives, SEC margin rules, and, and the list continues on. Additionally, new entities and relationships are being introduced into certain areas. For example, buy-side institutions needed to obtain membership from European custodians. 
This is new from a buy side perspective, but it's also new from a custodian perspective. They really are set up to grant membership to financial institutions and not entities like pension plans. So there's learning curves that are happening in this phase that I don't think happened in previous phases. And then for each negotiation, there's just bottlenecks at each institution. You have multiple entities trying to put these together. You have multiple agreements. It's not just one agreement for each counterparty relationship, but there could be up to six. So there just is a lot to get put in place. And, and there's a lot of entities to do that with limited resources, limited capacity, limited people to deal with it. Yeah. Jerome, what are your thoughts? Yeah, so we went into this. We're much more of a Wave 5 and Wave 6 provider than we were a Wave 1 through 4. And we went into this with the fear of the thousands of accounts and all the KYC. That did not materialize. The fact of the matter is we know our clients and the dealers are already active with us. So the KYC was not an issue for us. Thousands of accounts does not scare a global custodian. We open tens of thousands of accounts. We manage them every year. I think it's a lot more to do with selectivity and, uh, as Greg said, the conflicts that it is very much of an expert area. The same experts are going to have to play that consultant role, that onboarding role, that sales role, and that, you know, just making sure that the clients go live and everything runs smoothly. So one of the things that we've tried to do as early as possible is is to find resources on the market who were willing to be with us for a year or two years or three years and work along with us. And that really helped a lot. Now for ISDIS part, we're trying to support all of the efficiencies. For a long time, we've had ISDIS-SIM, which is a standard initial margin methodology that everybody can utilize. So firms don't have to compute and develop their own standard initial margin methodology. We also have ISDIS-CREATE, which is an online negotiation platform to address the issue that Greg raised regarding the multiple documentation and negotiation. You guys have been using either of these products and have any advice? We've been using both. We made determinations at the beginning that ISDA-SIM was going to be the best way to, to calculate initial margin on our behalf and to post. And ISDA-CREATE is the perfect solution to at least one portion of this problem. The platform is a fantastic negotiation tool. Unfortunately, at Ontario Teachers, we started negotiating prior to the platform going live. But we were able to use it in a few negotiations and have finalized our first agreement on the platform a few weeks ago, which is fantastic. The, the platform is really easy to use. Hopefully future negotiations make use of this platform as it's very efficient, intuitive, and easy to use. It's just it's just seamless from a legal standpoint. It, it looks like what you do in, in your regular job, but it's electronic and you get all the benefits of that as well. Terrific. Now, entities go through multiple operational steps to begin posting IM in line with the regulations, including setting up the important custodial relationships and negotiating credit support documentation. What are the most time-consuming steps that are being taken in this process? Greg, you want to start? Yeah, sure. Everything about the negotiations are, are time consuming. <laughs> Custodian relationships always take time to set up. There are three parties that ultimately need to come to an agreement. So it's just that extra little level that needs to be done. For each counterparty, we've seen two sets of tri-party arrangements, one custodian for each party. So we are looking at up to around six agreements for every counterparty that we have just to get put in place. And the custodian relationships, there has always been two. There's always a reason to have two. No one has been able, we haven't been able to use a two-way form or use a, the single form for one entity. The initial margin credit support agreement is a little bit easier in the sense that you have two parties that need to agree. But there are a lot more elections in that document, which means many more areas of potential disagreement, which is always fun. Also, some of the items that require a position are difficult to determine the best course of action. They require some work to be in a position to make an informed decision. For example, 
are you going to use third-party versus tri-party custody arrangements, which is probably one of the first things that you're thinking about in this case. Which arrangement are you entering into? Then you get to regulatory grid versus is the SIM. Which model are you going to use? Which margin approach are you going to use? Distinct, allocated, or greater of the margin flow approaches? And then finally, the termination currency. Is there a particular set of assets that you would like to pledge and how much will that impact your choice of termination currency? All things that you need to think about beforehand, but it is all time consuming because your elections may not be the same as your counterparties and trying to explain why you, you chose a certain path is always the fun of negotiating, I guess. The fun of negotiating. How many people are taking part in this fun negotiating process for your firm? Quite a few. There's project managers, there's senior committees, there's working committees, and it it does run like through every kind of aspect. So operations, credit, legal, front office, all kind of getting together and making sure that this is done as efficiently as possible, but also that our terms are matching how we want to practically implement this, right? Yeah. Jerome, what are your perspectives on this operational challenge? Sure. Just to hark back on the legal side, obviously legal is complicated, it's time-consuming. I think the time that we spend with the support of ISDA to get our documentation validated, our service agreement and our account control agreement was time well spent. Uh, It really accelerated the execution of these documents with the dealer community and with the buy side. So that really was a massive investment for us that that we see, you know, paid off. Then On our side, purely from a tri-party custodian point of view, I think it's also around connectivity, helping our clients find the best way to send us the RQV, the required value, the exposure amount, and get back the collateral reports. There are so many options on the market, whether you do it in-house, whether you have low volumes, then you can use the what we call our user interface, which is manually input the, the IM amount on every day, or you go to a third-party vendor. The options are limitless. And as a tri-party custodian, we have had to comply with all of these, but also make sure that our clients know how to use them, do the tech developments. So that's really been one of the pieces that's taken the most time. Interesting. And in terms of meeting the regulatory deadlines, how far ahead should in-scope entities set up their custodian relationships ahead of the deadline? And mindful that we're only three months ahead of the phase five, but for those in phase six, maybe they can get an early start. And they are. We're in an interesting moment where we are rushing to the final line with our Wave 5 clients, but we already are advising our Wave 6 clients. I think on this one, ISDA got this right. The 12-month advice is, I think, on the spot. It can be a lot longer. We've got some firms that are quite complex with you know, multiple geographies, multiple entities, sometimes delegated asset managers who started 18 months ahead. And that was... That was great. So we're going to be on time with these. I just don't think this can be done under nine months by the time you decide what your model is going to be. How do I calculate my initial margin, who my custodian is going to be, and just kickstart the legal documentation? And I don't think the custodian part can be done under six months. Let's talk a little bit about technology. How can technology help in the collateral management process? Which processes are most needed of automation and which benefits can these bring? Greg, let's start with you. Yeah, there's a significant room for technology or automation to assist in the collateral management process. Automating something like eligible collateral schedules could be one example. The communication between parties during the negotiation process is still heavily reliant upon emails and attachments. Any way to reduce tracking down latest versions of responses, including delays due to missed emails, would be welcomed, kind of similar to what ISDA Create has done for the schedules. Operationalization of the eligible collateral schedule terms 
onto a custodian's system requires the custodian to convert an executed PDF version of a Word or Excel document to a digitized format. There's a potential for errors, obviously, if it's not inputted correctly. And there's obviously an extra step here that seems completely unnecessary. It seems like we have the technology to be able to put this stuff in in a more efficient manner. Why not use it? This all may be custodian reliant, but uh, at the same time, it seems like it's just ripe for an area that could be automated. And finally, clients will typically want to ensure proper oversight of the custodian's initial setup and monitor obligations going forward to ensure compliance with the eligible collateral schedule terms. With respect to monitoring, a client will typically receive and uh, need to review raw data as opposed to a, a summarized report from a custodian. Like All these things just seem like they'd be so much easier if it was automated and put into some sort of digital format. Jerome, any thoughts on this? I mean, digital really is the, the, the key word. It's not a buzzword, it's a key word. Uh, on our side, I mean, Tri-Party is extremely automated. It's a 100% STP process. However, I do believe we need to digitalize and automate the onboarding process a lot more. One of the documents that comes to mind is the eligibility schedule. So that needs to move to a digital format across the board quite shortly. But overall, exchanging all the documentation by email is so tedious and quite risky, actually. So we are looking at BNP Paribas at tools to monitor the life cycle of an onboarding phase, just to make sure that there is a, a global repository of all the documentation to know in which court the bull is in. Because sometimes you waste a week or two or three weeks you know, looking at yourself, is it your turn or is it my turn? And so I think having that kind of life cycle management tool for onboarding is really essential. Can we agree that fax machines and PDFs shouldn't be part of a digital strategy, even though they may have some technology involved with them? We've given up, we've banned the first one, uh, no fax, but PDFs do exist and PDFs are going to be here for, for a few years, I believe. The final question I always like to ask, this is a big, broad community in financial services and people come from a variety of different backgrounds and find themselves in this business for kind of unique and different reasons. Would you advise a career in financial services to a young person today? And if you would, what would that advice be? Jerome, can we start with you? Yeah, of course. So my, my kids are three and five months. So three years old and five months. So I'm not giving that advice yet. But absolutely, it, it's one of the most diverse careers I've had. And I've had two careers before finance. So absolutely. And I think the advice I would give is, obviously, it's important to know what you're talking about. However, the soft skills are important. The interpersonal skills are important. This is an interpersonal business. We work together. Sometimes we compete with each other but we work together. And it's very important to make sure that we don't forget that. Excellent. Greg? Yeah, absolutely. I would recommend to a young person a uh, career in financial services. Financial services are so important to the economy. And there are so many different areas of financial services that you can be involved with. From a derivatives perspective alone, there's so many entities to get involved with. You have sell side or buy side, custodians, clearinghouses, regulators, other government institutions like central banks. The, the list goes on. Then within financial services, there are so many career paths that someone can take, which are entirely dependent on particular interests and skills that the person has. I'm a derivatives lawyer, but there are also traders, credit officers, financial operations professionals, modeling experts. Again, list goes on. From a legal perspective, there are seemingly continuous regulatory changes, so it never gets boring and there's always something new to work on and capture your attention. Automation may reduce some of your workload, but that just, just allows you to focus on the more important tasks that typically cannot be automated. This is where I want to spend my day. I would happily give up the more mundane aspects of any job to focus on the more cerebral tasks. 
So based on all that, I would without a doubt recommend a career in financial services. The advice that I would give, there's no single path that leads to a fulfilling career in any area, including financial services. When I went to law school, I wanted to be a prosecutor, like what you see on Law & Order. Obviously, I'm nowhere near the inside of a courtroom, but I'm really enjoying my career path. Be open-minded, explore a career path that you're actually interested in, be your true self, and enjoy life. Fantastic. Thank you very much, both of you, for the time. We really appreciate your perspective on this, and hopefully we get phase five and certainly phase six done with very little drama and frustration. But word to the listeners, plan early, right? So thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Scott, there were some interesting insights there on what firms need to do to prepare. How is ISDA supporting the implementation for phases five and six? Great question. Greg talked about it in his remarks, ISDA's standard initial margin model, which provides a standard calculation methodology for IM. The model has uh, proven its value in the first four phases, and we're going to continue to enhance it and update it over time. We even benchmarked it against the COVID pandemic response, and it held up very well. And we've shared that data and information with regulators and, you know, making sure we have that, that confidence and transparency from a regulatory standpoint is, uh, is very, very important. There's also a big role to be played, also mentioned by Greg, with is to create our platform for online negotiation and execution of documentation. We launched it back in 2019, and it provides a super effective way for completing all of the documentation required for the regulatory IAM on a single platform. And we're just looking to integrate that with other documentation, with custodian documentation, to make sure that the negotiation process links together and holds up and you create a digital footprint for all of this. So you're not going back to files, PDFs, documents, et cetera. It's all right there. I guess the final point is, let's not forget, we're still working in a pandemic. Remote working is our in our future. And we have to be able to figure out how we're going to manage our documentation and processes in a virtual space. So it really does require us to think in a very digital online presence. The idea that we're going to be passing, faxing, PDFing paper back and forth is is really not our future. It's our past. Yeah, absolutely. Lots to think about there, I think. It looks like we're going to be set for a very busy couple of months as market participants prepare for the September 1st phase five deadline. In the meantime, enjoy the rest of your trip, Scott, and good luck with the quarantine when you get home. We'll be keeping close tabs on this and other key issues for the derivatives and other financial markets, so watch out for our next episode. That's it for this episode. Thanks for listening to The Swap. Keep in touch with ISDA via our website, www.isda.org, and our social media channels. See you next time.